in case uh, you don't know me, I'm Rob. I'm the senior pastor here. And it's a joy to open up the scriptures with you. We're looking this morning at Titus 2. So you can open a Bible there. I'll also have the scriptures on the screen um, in case you do not have a Bible with you. We're looking at Titus 2. Our series is called Zealous for Good Works. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Paul's letter to Titus. And remember, Paul's writing Titus because he wants to give Titus a plan to unleash the church on Crete so that the church becomes the city on a hill that Jesus talked about in Matthew 5.14. He wants to create a people, a church that is zealous for good works. So he's given him a series of best practices. He talks week one to the idea of preaching and then week two to leadership. Last week, we looked at the teaching of the church, and we said that the church needs to leverage the relationships that are already present in the church for the teaching of the church to integrate into every heart and mind within the church. So it's a really good plan that Paul's presenting here. In fact, a great plan, a plan that's been working for thousands of years. And I want to suggest, though, that the church can fall into a trap. It can fall into a misunderstanding. You can begin to believe that because this is such a good plan, that all you really need to do to produce a healthy church is just follow step A, then step B, then step C, and poof, you have this place where it's alive and people's lives are being changed and kind of manufacture something. But I got to tell you, that's just not the way it works, okay? God doesn't make us responsible for that. He doesn't make us responsible for that for the same reason you don't hand your five-year-old the keys to the car and say, honey, you've been really good this week. Why don't you take it out for a spin? Now, you don't do that because why? The kid's not ready for the responsibility. Um, my middle son, he's a good kid, precocious. One week... His mom dropped them off the violin lessons, came back after the end of lessons and told the kids to get in the car so that she could have a conversation with the violin instructor. And so she leaves the car running. Well, you know what that precocious little boy does? He gets into the front seat of the car and he wants to figure out how all this stuff works. The power goes right to his head. He puts his hand on the steering wheels. He starts hitting the gas as hard as he can. Meanwhile, Katie, inside the house, hears this revving coming from the driveway. And, and you really don't understand this feeling until you've been a parent and you've heard a sound like that, but it's like your heart just sinks, doesn't it? She goes running out of the house and she sees our precious, precocious middle son with this just gleeful expression on his face, revving the engine of the car. And I'm telling you, thank God he wasn't precocious enough to put the thing into drive, because he would have. And the power had just gone right to his head. You know, I was thinking about this and thinking about the ministry of the church, and there's a lot of power at work when the church is active and it's alive and you're doing the work of God. 
I mean, Jesus talked about faith that can move mountains. We see in the scriptures prayers that move the hand of God. We're talking about eternal destinies that are at work here, life and death, heaven and hell. We're talking about the power of life transformation. And when it comes to these powerful dynamics, like a five-year-old child, we have no business operating the vehicle by ourselves. God doesn't hand the keys of the ministry of the church to us and says, oh, I'll see you guys in a couple thousand of years. Good luck with all of this stuff. No, he's not like that. He's like, instead, a father who invites his five-year-old son to sit on his lap and says, honey, let's drive the car together. Now, maybe you're parents did that for you when you were little. I remember doing that as a child, and I felt like a million bucks. I mean, I was helping daddy to drive the car after all. I was responsible for something significant, but not dangerously so. He had his hands on the wheels. He wasn't going to let the car veer off to the right and crash and burn us into a tree. And I, as I think about the ministry of the church I believe God's doing the same thing. You see, we're looking at a big idea this morning, and we're actually going to be looking at this big idea for two weeks consecutive. It's that important. And the idea is this, that what God does is more important than what we do. Don't think that it's all about following steps. Don't think that we're in control of the vehicle. Ultimately, what God does is more important. And I can, I can break this idea down into one word, and the idea is this. It's grace. Grace. Grace is what God does. Grace is what God alone does. And he invites us into the beauty, the miracle of participating in grace. So we're going to take a look at that as Paul describes it to us in verse 11, but we'll read the entire passage that we'll be looking at for the next two weeks. Paul says this, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus, verse 15, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So we begin with verse 11 and I begin with the question, what is so amazing about this grace that we see in the Bible? And the only way to really understand what is so amazing about grace is to begin with understanding our problem, and we have a big problem. I want to suggest that analogies are helpful, and I like to put our problem in, the in an analogy that involves swimming. I was a swimmer in high school. I like to think in these terms. But you and I, we are separated from God. There is a distance, a spiritual distance between ourselves and the living God of the universe. 
Think of us being separated from God like a separation such as the distance between the North American continent and the African continent. That's a pretty big separation when you think about it. It's about 8,100 miles of distance between the continents. And you have one objective. You need to get to God's heaven. You need to get right with God. You only get one chance, no redos, no breaks along the way. Now, Scripture, when it talks about this separation between us and God, says that the separation exists because of our sin. If you look at the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah describes this to us. In Isaiah 53, 6, he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So this is a universal problem. This isn't just a problem for some peoples and some types. It's all have gone astray. And then later in Isaiah 59, 2, he says, Your iniquities, which is another term for sin, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. What do we do about this separation? What have humans done throughout all human history? Well, if you look at human philosophy, human politics, human religion, I think it's always the same answer. There's a separation between us and God, it's a big distance. We'd better get in the water and start swimming. Let's swim our way to God. And of course, in order to get to God, you've got to become a better swimmer. The Pharisees in the New Testament Gospels, they were like Olympic-level swimmers when you think about their stance with God. They, of course, got in the water. They could swim better than anyone else. Think about their moral goodness, their righteousness, their religiousness. Maybe you think to yourself, I'm a pretty generous person. I tithe an offering to the church. They did it better than you do it. They tithed all the way down to the spices in their cupboard. You think to yourself, well, I know the Bible. I have a Bible at home. I have a Bible app in my pocket. Well, let me tell you about these guys. They were the Bible app, okay? They had memorized the Pentateuch, so much so that you could pick up anywhere within the Pentateuch, start reading a little bit, and they would, from the top of their brain, start verbatim telling you what the Bible said. I mean, these guys are Olympic-level swimmers, and what is their answer to getting right with God, to covering the distance. Well, their religious answer is you've got to just keep swimming. I hate to use a bad Dory analogy here, but that's their answer. And of course, if you're in the ocean swimming alongside of them, you think to yourself, they're crushing it right now. I mean, they're hundreds of yards ahead of where I'm at right now. I've got to start getting better at swimming too. Of course, morally speaking, there's always been bad swimmers. I think of a guy like Zacchaeus as described to us in Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was viewed as the worst kind of sinner in his society. He was called a chief tax collector and if you knew anything about this culture during this time period, 
These guys weren't just despicable. They're the worst kind of despicable. They were traitors to the people of God, helping the enemies of God, and getting rich off of that dynamic. You got a guy like Zacchaeus, who's the chief among them. I mean, he's not just a bad swimmer. This guy has stopped swimming a long time ago. He's a social pariah. Jesus comes into his village and Zacchaeus knows he has no business associating with any of the other good town people. So what does he do? He climbs a tree just so that he can get a glimpse of this Jesus and hear a few words of his message. And what I love about what Paul's saying here in Titus 2.11, he says, the grace of God has appeared. And We'll unpack that meaning a little more down the road, but for now, just notice in this story that Jesus appears to Zacchaeus. You have this guy sitting up in this absurd little perch from a tree, and he's watching all of these things transpire, and Jesus appears to him. He walks past him, and instead of looking at Zacchaeus and saying, you are right where you belong to be, you sinful, wretched human being. Jesus, out of all of the places where he could have gone that day, all of the good households he could have eaten at, he says, Zacchaeus, come down, hurry up from that tree. Today, I must eat with you at your house. Now, the problem with any of us today hearing that text is we don't hear that text rightly. It's not scandalous enough to us. We hear that text and we're like, oh, that's just so nice. I love how kind Jesus is. He's just inviting Zacchaeus to come down from the tree and he's going to go eat with him. You're not hearing the term chief tax collector rightly. You need to hear something more like captain of the Nazi guard or chief child abuser, okay? It's not a warm, fuzzy story. You hear him, invite him, and you're supposed to feel a little scandalized by the story. And let me just tell you this, there's something scandalous about the grace of God. There's something scandalous about the ministry of Jesus. In fact, I see two things that are scandalous. Number one, Jesus was hated by the religious people because he didn't care about your swimming abilities. They made no difference to him. Olympic level goodness and righteousness, maybe you can check all the boxes, maybe you're outperforming and outpacing everyone around you with your your giving and your prayer life and your church attendance, and maybe you even come from 10 generations of family members who are also good swimmers. Jesus doesn't care about any of that. Why? Well, think about the objective, right? The separation between ourselves and God. North America and Africa are 8,100 miles apart from one another. Do you know the longest distance a human being has ever swam in the ocean? Get this, 77 miles less than 1% of the distance. So you think that you're going to impress God with your moral goodness and your righteousness and your own human abilities? You're not even, like, beginning to fail. You're just starting off 
drowning before anyone else is drowning. That's the problem here. That's what Jesus is seeing. Here's a second scandal. The second scandal is the kind of people that he's willing to embrace. He embraces all the wrong kind of swimmers. It's only human for us to create categories of good people and bad people. In Jesus' day, Matthew eleven nine, he was disapproved of because of his friendships. He was accused of being a glutton, a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And of course, he wasn't a glutton or a drunk, but in their mind, in this day, good swimmers stick with good swimmers because if good swimmers go with bad swimmers, bad swimmers pull you down. But Jesus isn't interested in those categories. Listen to what Scott Saul says on this point. He says, the scandal around Jesus is a reality that distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion as well as from all forms of human philosophy and politics. Jesus and Christianity do not discriminate between good people and bad people. Instead, Jesus and Christianity discriminate between humble people and proud people. And then he quotes James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this is why the dis this distinction matters. Because the difference between life and death has nothing to do with your abilities or even your lack of abilities. Everyone's drowning. Instead, it has everything to do with your willingness to look to God for rescue. That's the distinction. And proud people drown because proud people aren't looking for rescue. They're resting upon their own logic and their own goodness and their own self-righteousness and their own resources and their own abilities. And meanwhile, they're never going to cross the distance. It's not possible. So it's not about good people and bad people. The difference has to do with the difference of humility, and pride. So let's come back to this idea of grace. Paul's words, Titus 2.11, again, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, the term appeared in our text this morning is a significant word in the Greek language. It's a technical term that was used to describe a hero or a God breaking into a helpless such situation to rescue from danger. So think of Superman and Lois Lane falling from a building and he swoops in at just the right time and rescues her. That's an appearing. And this grace that appears, it's not some abstract doctrine and it's not some kind of theological Constructs. Sometimes we think of grace in those categories. But really, the best way to use a passage like Titus 2.11 is to use it around Christmas time. What happened at Christmas? Grace appeared. That's because grace isn't an abstract thought. Grace comes to us as a person. The baby, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what John talks about in John 1.14. He says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So that's the Christmas message. Love came down in our ocean of lostness. Love came down and did what we couldn't do. We couldn't make that distance. Jesus perfectly obeyed God. Jesus could swim that distance. Love died in our place, and love came down and rescued us from our hopeless situation. Now, Paul tells us what's even more amazing about this grace in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, For while we were still weak, we were spiritually drowning. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you're drowning and a life raft shows up, that's just the right time, isn't it? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So imagine that Jesus doesn't just die for you, but he dies for you even while you were an enemy of God. Now, we might push back on that a little bit. We might think to ourselves, I'm not an enemy of God, and I'm not Jesus's enemy. Maybe I haven't always lived for him. Maybe I haven't always been a Jesus freak or something like that, but I've never been actively opposed to him like an enemy would be. But scripture says this, Scripture says that your sin and my sin nailed him to the cross. Jesus wouldn't have to take on flesh. He wouldn't have to go to the cross if it wasn't for our sin. And so when you think about responsibility, we are just as responsible for the death of the Son of God as the Sanhedrin who drummed up the false charges, as Peter who denied him, as the crowd who yelled crucified him, as Pilate who washed his hands of the situation, condemning Jesus to the cross, as the Roman soldiers who tortured the Son of God and nailed him to the cross. We are responsible for every single drop of the Son of God's blood. And I'm telling you this morning, church, that's significant. I remember, um, did you see the movie The Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson had made? He made a, a really quiet, symbolic way of, of demonstrating this in that movie. In the scene when Jesus is being nailed to the cross, the hands that are shown nailing Jesus' hands and feet to the cross were Gibson's own hands. So he was quietly saying, my sin did this. And I don't look at him as a paragon of virtue or anything like that, but I agree with what he's saying in that statement. Our sin nailed the Son of God to the cross. Now think about the kindness of Jesus despite that. He's on the cross, and one of the prayers that he offers up to the Father, even while he's being crucified, is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he's not just praying that for the Roman soldiers. He's not just praying that for the Jewish people who had condemned him. He's praying that on behalf of all humanity. You see, as we get into this concept of grace, 
we come to the understanding, first, we're separated from God. Second, we're separated and hostile towards God. And despite all of that, God comes to us in the person of Jesus, and he comes near to us. And even as he's being nailed to the cross and crucified because of our sin, God is kindly praying for us, forgiving us, and extending us grace. In Romans 2, 4, Paul says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's kindness that breaks down the barriers of human sin and human pride and softens the heart of a person to come near to God. Now, let's think about the ministry of the church. The only way for the church to be what the church could and should be is the church needs to eat, breathe, and sleep the grace of God. And grace is always best offered with kindness, not judgmentalism. Kindness, not judgmentalism. Why? Because if we're going to look like God, we have to do things the way God would do it. And whenever I forget this about the ministry of the church, I begin to lose my spiritual appeal. What's my one job as a Christian? My one job as a Christian is to tell spiritually drowning people that you can stop swimming. You don't have to keep striving in this impossible situation. You can't fix your problem. You need rescue. You need the grace of God in your life. So my job is to exercise the same gentleness and kindness that Jesus extended to me while I was spiritually drowning. And the second that I develop grace amnesia is the second I start doing things wrongly. What does grace amnesia look like? Well, grace amnesia looks like Christians shouting swimming instructions to spiritually drowning people. Oh, you need to do this better with your life. You need to stop this kind of lifestyle habit or pattern. Why are you politically affiliated this way? Why are you, and, and on and on it goes. We're just shouting swimming instructions at people, right or wrong. We're shouting them at people. That person doesn't need to learn how to swim better. They're drowning. They need rescue. They need to hear about the grace of God. That their sins can be forgiven because of Jesus and what Jesus did. We talk about this all the time around here. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You know, I've been walking with Jesus for 20 years, fairly closely, an active disciple, uh, someone who is actively trying to do what he says, tell other people about him. And in that time of 20 years, you know, I've never once seen a person fall in love with Jesus because they've been scolded into the kingdom. I've never seen that. I've seen that kind of cause the wrong type of reactions, but everyone that I've met in this world who has come into a close encounter with Jesus, fallen in love with Jesus, started following Jesus, is because they've seen the kindness of God in one of his followers. Now, don't misconstrue what I'm saying here this morning. Sometimes we think kindness means that I avoid telling the truth. That's not kindness. 
In fact, sometimes the kindest thing you can do for someone is tell them the truth. Jesus was a truth teller, wasn't he? He's talking to the rich young ruler in the Gospels, and he tells this guy, listen, your riches are like spiritual sludge. It's poisoning your heart. You've got to give those up, and you've got to come and follow me. And the rich young ruler, of course, knows that Jesus is telling the truth, and he walks away sad, right? Or he tells the truth to the adulterous woman in John chapter 8. They, they, they throw her out in front of Jesus. They say, stone this woman. We've caught her in adultery. Jesus says to them, he says, he of you who is without sin, you cast the first stone, and everyone leaves the scene, right? Because they know that they're sinners too. Now, Jesus could have casted a stone. He didn't have any sin. And when he tells her the truth, he tells her it so kindly. He says, go and sin no more. You know what you've done. You need me in your life. See, kindness is just simply a refusal to rub someone's spiritual lostness in their face. Kindness is the ability to offer grace because grace has turned my life upside down and it's turned your life upside down. And grace is what sets a church ablaze, what sets it on fire. A couple of weeks ago, there was a couple of visitors who had come to our church. Uh, they were from Illinois. They were from my dad's church. Name was uh, Al and Donna. And by the way, they said you guys are awesome. They loved just how warm and affectionate and kind you were as a body of Christ. So good for you. I hear that a lot. Keep that up. So I have Al and Donna over to my house, and Al begins to tell me his story. Earlier in his life, he's training to become a seminary. Um, he's in seminary, and he's training to become a priest. And I don't know what happened. He didn't tell me what happened, but something happened in his ministerial training that left him utterly disenfranchised. He leaves that place and he decides for the rest of his life he wants nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the people of God. In fact, he was pretty point blank with me at lunch. He looked me in the face and he said, I hated God and I hated people just like you. And I was like, well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. I mean, the guy was spiritually drowning. He would spend the next so many decades of his life feeding bitterness and resentment that leads into a consuming anger. And if you guys know anything about that, that tends to bleed over into your relationships. And he damaged his relationship with his daughter so much so that one of them wanted nothing to do with him. Fast forwarding the story, L, a series of instances occur in his life, and he says, I decided that I needed to give God a second chance. And I'm sitting here thinking like, boy, that's so funny because you don't give God a chance. God gives you a chance, but that's where you're at right now. That's fine. 
And he does completely the wrong thing. I'd never tell someone to do this. He picks up the Bible and he starts reading from the beginning. I always tell people you need to go to the Gospel of John, start there, and then maybe work your way through the New Testament, back through the Old Testament. But you know what? The Holy Spirit really doesn't care what I think. And so Al picks up the Bible. He starts reading from the beginning. He gets to Genesis chapter 3. He's reading about the fall of man. And he says, I was stopped dead in my tracks. I knew that this story was talking about me. Now, he doesn't know anything about the grace of God. He doesn't know the rest of the Bible story. But he knows he's in big trouble. Was God's providence is working out. One of Ail's daughters, she becomes a believer. She and her husband start attending McLean Bible Church in Washington, D.C., under the preaching ministry of Lon Solomon, and they're telling him about this. He starts checking into the preaching. And week after week, through Lon Solomon's preaching, he hears about the grace of God. Al places his faith in Christ. And he realizes, now I need to find a gospel preaching church. So through some relationships, he hears about my parents. He starts coming to Oaklawn Bible Church, where my dad in that church is a great expositor of grace. Dad has had that as a mark in his ministry because he grew up in a church that preached legalism. When he's growing up, he thought that only the 800 people who attended that church were going to heaven. But one day, he picks up Warren Wiersbe's commentary, Be Free, and he starts reading about the book of Galatians, and he learns about the grace of God. It completely transforms his life, and it would be a mark of his preaching ministry. So, Al is sitting under this exposition of grace, and he comes to the realization, I need to be baptized. So he comes up to my dad one Sunday and he says, we need to get this whole baptism thing done here. Now he's expecting dad to tell him, you need to jump through these seven religious hoops before you can be baptized. Of course, dad's like, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, absolutely. All right, let's set up an appointment and talk about this baptism thing. Al is so excited about his baptism that he turns into like Philip the Evangelist. He goes around telling everybody that he's about to get baptized. He begins by telling his sister. She's like, El, you're so different right now. I think I need whatever you have. Can I get baptized as well? So Al calls my dad on the phone, and he's like, hey, can, can my sister come and get baptized? And you know just what he said. He said, no, 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 no. We only baptize one person at a time here. Of course, he doesn't say that. He says, bring her out to the appointment. Al keeps going. He tells his daughter about it. She asks to get baptized. It keeps going so much so, get this, that the day of the appointment for baptism, there are seven family members who are ready to get baptized. You see, a guy like Al, he didn't need swimming instructions. He needed a church that let God do what only God can do. And as the grace of God was working in his life and operating in his life and changing him, and we're going to see that next week because grace doesn't just save us, it also trains us, it changes us.
God starts using him. And I'm telling you, this is Al's reporting of this, that Sunday morning. He was like, your dad got into that baptismal pool. And it was like, kajunk, kajunk, kajunk. He's just baptizing everybody in the church. It was incredible. He's a very animated guy, if you haven't guessed yet. But that's grace. That's the grace of God at work in a church. And I want to say this this morning. You know, my heart for anyone here on a Sunday morning is if you're not aware of this grace, if you're still a swimmer, if you're just trying to get right with God by striving in life and, and, and counting on your own goodness and your own righteousness, you're going about it all the wrong way. You can stop swimming. Jesus did it all. He died in your place. He rose again from the dead. Grace is a gift. It's a gift of rescue. In fact, let me invite you to just bow your heads with me this morning. And if you're here this morning and you're hearing this message and you're saying, I need that grace too, I want to just give you an opportunity to reach out to Jesus in prayer and invite him into your world. Just quietly where you're at in your heart, pray this along with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and control. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, of course, I would love to know that. You can email me, rob at osterville.baptist.org. You can come talk to me. You can talk to another leader of the church. But we're here to help you along in your spiritual journey.